I have noticed that every few years something happens. And it's something that you could not have predicted. It's always something happens. And no one would think that that would be the war in Europe. Like if somebody asked me that the next thing that's going to happen, that's going to really put us into a weird and properly understood environment, that that would be the war breaking out, full-scale war in Eastern Europe. Like I wouldn't have, maybe some people would have thought that I wouldn't have. And even when, when the war was kind of looming, when the tensions were rising, I wouldn't be the one to say, well, this is what's going to dictate the direction of global financial markets. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I've invited one of them, who also happens to be a longtime friend, namely Harry Krishnan, to host a series of in-depth conversation on the topics of volatility, risk, and portfolio protection. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolio. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized market participants and the processes they follow to harness their returns so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much, Niels, for this introduction. My guest today is Alex Gurevich, founder and chief investment officer of Honte Investments, based in the Bay Area. Uh, aside from being a well-known hedge fund manager in the macro space, he's the author of two books, The Next Perfect Trade, A Magic Sword of, of Necessity, and more recently, The Trades of March 2020, A Shield Against Uncertainty, which was published by Houndstooth Press in January of this year. So thank you very much, Alex, for joining me, and uh, I hope we'll have a great discussion. I'm excited to be over. Thank you for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. Now, we discussed beforehand the idea of talking about background, and uh, we'll skim over this very quickly. Um, I know you have a PhD in math from the University of Chicago. I know you were a macro trader, a well-known macro trader, JP Morgan. But I'm also interested in your background as a market maker in asset swaps. So maybe you could just say make a few comments about that, because it does feature fairly heavily in your second book. Yes. So my first Wall Street job was uh, a market maker on fixed income derivatives. I was hired from right after I got my PhD in mathematics, I decided to go into Wall Street. And I think it is important because I took a somewhat unusual path, not a typical path 
for math PhDs because a lot of my compatriots went uh, into some sort of quantitative research and trading, and many of them have done extremely well, ex including a couple of my close friends from those times. But I, from the very beginning, really wanted to go into actual strategic trading. And somehow they had the idea that they can hire PhDs in mathematics for actual trading jobs and think that they can apply their analytic skills or their general ability to understand value. This was the end of 90s. And in my case, I think it kind of worked. So I started at Bankers Trust on fixed income derivatives, and then which became Deutsche Bank after merger, and then went to Chase, became JP Morgan Chase. Yes, and I started very early to trade, but it was a swap desk. So it started with generic interest rate coupon swaps, but I was very soon focused on slightly more esoteric projects like municipal index swaps and basis index swaps. Not all even people know what it is, but those are very specific products in which liquidity is much lower than what you used to in liquid products. There are some trades which have a lot of value relative to historicals. Like you can kind of do the trade and say like, wow, this trade really is going to carry well. This trade, this price here doesn't really make sense, right? And a lot of, because it's a lot could be flow driven. And however, you not always have a good way out of things go against you. And there is also what was very important for me to understanding in terms of even forming my strategy and forming my approach to the markets, I understood that those esoteric products are affected by macro factors. Like there might be not direct interest rate risk in a product, but you will start realizing which trades perform better when rates go up and which trades perform worse when rates go up. You start understanding which trades have base, hidden bait in them, which trades perform better when there is some kind of crisis. And you also start understanding that the type of crisis matters too, that the war is different from regular recession and different from pandemic. And we've recently had exposures to all of those things. And what you think is a hedge against one thing is not a hedge against another. So that gave me very early exposure. Okay, I have a portfolio of client trades, which cannot be moved very easily. And I need to keep do doing business with clients who come in for very big trades. I was, especially when I got my first senior job at JP Morgan Chase, and I started to run a pretty big portfolio of client trades. The clients would come on with trades with multi-billion dollar notionals. Now, notionals are not as, it's not as big as it sounds because for, for interest rate swaps, the actual risk is not like in billions of you have multi-billion swap, but it was still big trades and you could not unload them. So you had to start thinking, how is my portfolio positioned in which cases I'm going to lose or make money and how I'm going to balance it without mm -hmm. turning around into the market and switching things. So it was my introduction to uh, constructing balanced portfolios. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic because it sort of leads me into the beginning of the book, which is a kind of a um, thesis about why you like to be long treasuries or why at least you liked to be long treasuries going into 2020 when most economists, at least, or people on the outside felt the treasuries were hideously overvalued. And so people talked about things like the term premium being at all time lows and various other factors or just yields, outright yields being low. But I think you had quite a different perspective that was very fruitful in the beginning, at least in the beginning of March 2020. Maybe you can say something about how you think of valuing treasuries, perhaps relative to swaps or things like that. Yes, I think, uh, I honestly think that people 
some people said that treasuries were overvalued in 2013. They said the mm. same thing in 99. They say the same thing in 2020, and they're saying the same things now. And I really think that people who are saying this have no idea what they're saying. Because, but of course, retrospectively, that was, I was right those previous times and so far wrong this time. So we will see. I understand. But well, JGBs were even more, even have an older history of people claiming the end of Japanese government bonds in terms of upward price yeah. movements. And uh, yeah, it's it quite it a case ended. study. It never ended. And you could argue <laughs> the same thing about boons and everything, right? First of all, I think the whole notion of term premium. So I've been in fixed income markets for almost 25 years, 25 years, yes. I still don't understand what it means. I think it's a complete smoke and mirrors. I think term premium has absolutely zero meaning. <laughs> I honestly think that there is like zero. Those are words which I just replace every time somebody says term premium, replace it by blah, blah, blah. Because term premium adds absolutely no value to the discussion because everything can be derived. You have a bond price, yield, swap spread. You don't need term premium to derive anything there. This is not an this is not a term in the equation that required to solve any equations. So did I tell you how I feel about term premium? Oh, I'd yes. like you to say it again if you could, but um just for the just for the audience's benefit, very roughly, the term premium is sort of the difference between, say, a 10-year or a 30-year rate and the average of a series of one-year rates and years forward. So um, it's somehow it's a measure that a non-tradable measure of the shape of the yield curve. Yeah. So anyway, so I think when you look at them, any valuing any assets, there is really two ways to think about any asset. I think it's applied to anything, to treasuries, to stocks, to precious metals, whatever, cryptocurrency. One of them is very simple. Assets go up when there's more buyers than sellers, and they go down when there's more sellers than buyers. It's that simple. So if you think there will be more buyers and the asset will go up, you buy it, you buy low and sell high. That has, you don't need term premiums to say that treasuries will go up or treasuries will go down. If you think treasuries will go, that there will be demand for treasuries will overcome supply at this current level, you'll think that they're going to go up, right? And, and converse is true. There is also this other way of valuing any asset is cash flows. That is just actually say what cash flows you're going to receive from that asset. Now, when it comes to the first one, more buyers and more sellers, I think I've been wrong as often as I've been right in my life, in the sense that sometimes I'm tactically correct and sometimes I'm tactically wrong. I'm not, I'm trying to time things the best I can in the sense that I try to increase my positions with seem to be good spots and take profits that seem to be good spots. Sometimes you're forced to cut positions for other reasons, say risk management. So there could be all sorts of things going on, but it's not like I know when they're giving you I think trying to figure out treasuries from that perspective is very hard, and people have been befuddled by this many times. Now, from perspective of cash flows, this is where I think there is a divergence between how I think of valuing treasuries and some other people. Yeah. And honestly, I went through this evolution myself. When I first came to Wall Street in 97, I was like, why do bonds yield only like five or six percent? That's so <laughs> expensive. You can make so much more on stock market. So the mentality is, why would I own an asset which yields 5% and which is now transferring to mentality, why do I own an asset which yields 2%, right? Why do I own an asset which yields 1% if stock market on average yields 7 or 8%? But that's very much a hold to maturity mentality. It is hold to maturity mentality, and it's a Newtonian mechanics men mentality. In the year 2000, or roughly the year 
2000, a little bit before that, the theory of relativity and finance was discovered. And I was part of the discovery, even though I was not the first, but I was one of the first people to implement the theory of relativity of finance, which is risk parity. I honestly think that risk parity for finance was as important as theory of relativity for physics. So the idea is that bonds are not the displacement for stocks. Bonds are the enhancement of portfolio of stocks. So if you have a portfolio of stocks, you don't need to sell any stocks to own bonds. What you can do, you can use those stocks as collateral to own bond futures, and your portfolio becomes overall both safer and more profitable. The shift from portfolio, the shift from the idea of just holding stocks and 100% stocks or holding 100% stocks and 100 Instead of holding 100% stocks, now you can hold 150% stocks and 250% bonds or some ratio like that, depending on duration, right? And that improved portfolios so dramatically. The portfolio you get there, the improvement was so unbelievable that that was like discovering theory of relativity. Couldn't you have done quite well just by levering your bond portfolio and forgetting about stocks? Because I think the sharp on a standalone basis was higher for... I think they're close. Actually, I think they're close. Risk it depends upon uh, the sharp for bonds and stocks. Uh, I think stocks might actually give you better risk-adjusted return if you look at it superficially, but when you adjust for funding costs, it probably will be about close. Uh, the sharp for uh, risk parity, I think I'm not going is higher than either of those. And basically, that's a rebalancing thing where you're kind of gaining some benefit from the correlation. Yes, you're gaining some balance. Uh, benefit from negative correlation. And it not always works on a daily basis, but on a large scale, it works extremely well. It has worked. Now we can get better later in the way it works now and whether we're still in that environment. But that was the amazing shift. And then, so you don't think of bonds as displacing other investments. Mm -hmm. You think of them as protecting other investments and still earning money. And the other, the other thing uh, to understand, as you said, like to get away from the call to maturity mentality, there's two other ways to think about bonds. Uh, mm -hmm. So getting away from the call to maturity mentality, it's a basically cash, right? Because it's a liquid investment, which is, uh, can be used as collateral if you assume that US treasury bonds are risk-free. And so you could have, for example, in the recent environment, right now you can have cash yielding nothing or cash yielding 2%. Just on the point of risk-free though, you can say there are two forms of risk, right? There's duration risk and default risk. Are you referring to both or just default risk? I'm referring to default risk. When it comes to duration risk, there is also, I will get to one, one more point about duration risk. There is also a very common misconception. People look at 30-year bonds, say yielding 3% and say like, oh, all the risk is against us. Like, because how, how much lower can the yield go? But as people learned, for example, with Austrian bonds, when, when Austrian government issued uh, negative, we issued 100-year bonds, which is basically equivalent to setting your taxpayers' money on fire, and they rallied like 100%, you immediately should fire anybody who issued a bond that rallied 100% because you just gave away the money, right? <laughs> So that is literally setting your money on fire. Like, and there was no question that it was setting the money on fire ex ante, right? Complete, completely asinine, sorry for strong words. But uh, because of convexity, if the 30-year bond rallies from 3% yield to zero yield, the par bond goes from 100 to 190 in price. Yeah, your DVO1 is particularly high when yields are low. So low yields actually benefit you more if yields drop a bit. Correct. So 
what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that bond defaults, so yields go to infinity. Well, if yields go to infinity, then you lose 100. So basically at around 3%, your risk reward is symmetric, even if you don't take into account for 30 year bond, even if you don't take into account the uh, possibility of negative interest rates. And even if you think that complete 100% de complete default is a possibility, your risk is symmetric. Now, I know I have the risk of rambling here because there's so many questions I want to ask, so I'll try and be somewhat systematic. But do you, do you think that the push post-2008 toward collateralized lending or the emphasis on collateralized lending has made bonds even more important as something to hold over time because their value has just increased in terms of acting as funding for the repo markets and various other um, funding markets? You know what? I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer this question, but my first intuition is that the debt markets is the global debt markets, which because treasury is only a small fraction of the global debt market, right? As the amount of cash flows, debt markets, outstanding obligations of every kind of transactions is growing and it's growing very rapidly in the world to like hundreds of trillions of dollars. The demand for safe collateral is also increasing. So that, that is actually going into my first paragraph of more buyers than sellers. This has nothing to do with economic value, right? If people need safe, like for example, if some pension funds are prescribed to the whole certain percentage of their positions and treasuries, as they grow, they need more treasuries. Yeah, if foreign investors want to buy dollar, want to hold some dollars and want to hold some of them in the form of treasuries, again, as global financial system grows, the demand grows. And even with, and uh, US treasury issuance that is increasing, might still not keep up with this global demand for collateral or barely keep up with it. You know. And cross-border settlements occur even now in USD, largely. So that increases the demand for dollars and dollars that bear interest are of value. I presume all of that is important, which kind of brings us to back to the book, which, as I said, I enjoyed greatly and recommend highly, where you talked a lot about this um, these dirt cheap options or these dirt options that you bought on euro dollars. I can't remember, they were expiring in March or June of 2020. And the interesting thing that you, you did that I strongly agree with um, in terms of its relevance today is you argued that the distribution of outcomes in terms of Fed policy were very different from a normal or even a log normal distribution in the sense that if out of the blue some crisis occurred, endogenous or ex exogenous, whatever, the range of outcomes was far different from what would um, be expected. And in fact, there were two peaks, one close to a zero yield and another one which was kind of maybe flatter, but assumed that nothing would happen. Can you say how you came up with this idea and why you think it's significant? Because in your discussion of these options, you never mention volatility directly. You're only thinking about the distribution of outcomes from a macro perspective. And I found that fascinating. And maybe if you could elaborate on that. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I first of all, I do have experience trading options as a market maker. So as among my various market making jobs that we mentioned earlier, I have made markets on options. So I have a good feel for options on the other side. And I've, I have a feel how implied volatility is often not the whole story. And it, I also understand the difference between holding options and delta hedging the options continuously. And in fact, I mentioned it in my book, I tend to be very cautious and avoidant about using options as a client. 
having seen how many times on the other side, from the banking side, how people are grinding themselves away their profits by using options. First of all, because it involves much more bid offer usually to use them. And secondly, because there are so many ways to be wrong. Like if you just say, I'm buying XYZ, you make money if it goes up. But if you bought an option in XYZ, you could be wrong about how much it went up, when it went up how fast it went up. All of those things could erode your profits. So there's so many chances to be right about general direction of your underlying asset. And I hate it when I'm, when I'm right. It's hard enough to be right about underlying asset. It's, it's not an easy <laughs> business. I've, I've, no. I've okay. been humbled many times, including recently by markets a lot. So when you are right, it's precious. It's like you found a diamond, you are right about the market. So you better make money. So I don't want to squander the situation when I'm right about the market on some speculative constructs, like some deep out of the money options, knock in, knock out, some kind of complex things, which might give high payout if you're really, really right, but might end up with zero if you're just kind of right. And kind of right is like the most I hope for usually. My perception of macro, and again, everyone does it differently, uh, is that you do put some highly convex trades in the cupboard or in the closet that you don't look at because that can create much higher returns at relatively low premium outlay. Is that something that you... I try to do it, but I try to do it without paying for premium, but actually getting paid for it. And that's a perfect example of treasury bonds. This is convex trade that you actually get paid to hold. And there are other opportunities when you put convex trades by using some esoteric products, which I'm just really thinking about things like carefully, you could structure a portfolio that most of your trades are both convex, but at the same time, uh, have positive rather than negative carry. Would an example being be something like, and I know you mentioned this in the book as well, uh, Canadian and Australian dollar yields were lower than US treasury yields if you went out, say, 10 years. Um, so you could buy Aussie dollar puts or Canadian dollar puts and US dollar calls, and the roll down or the forward differential would actually pay for the time decay in the trade. Is that the sort of thing you're thinking of, or is it more just an interest rate, pure interest rate type thing? Well, in such situations, honestly, I would be just long dollar and earn the carry on the dollar and say like, okay, dollar has, uh, sometimes it's just, you just create convexity by looking at the range of where the product is. For example, if you find something relatively cheap to historical range and you see like, not only I have positive carry, but I'm also have more upside and downside. So, and you look for pro, so for you look for risk on convexity, something, for example, some beaten down emerging market currency, which can rally a lot if you're right. And on the other side, you can look for, say, gold, or you can look for treasuries. So you can look for some, on occasion, you can buy options if they're very cheap, but you look wherever possible. And this is what I've learned in asset swap world. You can structure a lot of trades which are not negative carry or positive carry and still give you actually good convexity. The downside of that, and it happens on occasion, it's, is that unlike options, it's not so cast in stone. Like an option, you know, an option is an option. You cannot lose more than premium. When you do like this kind of speculation, oh, this trade should have a good profile in such and such situation, <laughs> yeah. you use your experience, you use your judgment, but you could happen to be wrong. And then what happens is that exactly at the time when you really need this trade to work for you and give you that convexity, what if it goes the other way for whatever reason? And it did happen more than one time in my career, but it's still worth it because overall it gives better portfolio performance than paying away option premium. Well, it's interesting because um, 
when you trade delta one, when you just trade futures or forwards or whatever, it puts more of a burden on you to trade actively and manage your position, even if you're just sort of trading around the edges. And I see a lot of interesting trades in the book where you're trading in and out of positions quite a bit just to keep the position going. And many of these trades were unprofitable, but overall you had a lot of big winners, at least in March 2020, which I think do really point to the skill that you must have brought to bear on this. I mean, many retail traders and a lot of retail traders watch this um, station. They want every trade to be a winner. They don't think in terms of aggregation of trades that are a combination of risk control, going for the for lack of a better phrase, going for the kill on a winning trade, um, keeping the position small enough that you can keep going and so on. This is something that you really point out with quite a bit of humility in the book. And uh, maybe you can say something about that. Well, even to go one step further on the humility part. So this was what the interesting thing for me. I wrote this book, obviously, I chose the period when I was actually did well, right? Somebody else can write books about the years when I underperformed, right? 2020 was a good year for me, and some people might have done even better, but I feel like I outperformed that year 2020. And in March 2020, it was an interesting sample because it was a lot of stress, a lot of mistakes, as you pointed out, a lot of trades which were done and reversed very quickly afterwards because they were just going so far sideways. But uh, in the end, it was successful. So I think it was an interesting lesson to aspiring traders, as you mentioned, you're not going to have all your trades work out, even when you are on fire, even if you're like really on top of your game, I'll, like even my best years, there are so many th mistakes you make even on your best year. And if you get, if you have the kind of personality that you cannot live with this, if you're going to be caught on shoot of would and keep like tearing your hair that like, oh, I should have, why didn't I do this? Of course, we'll do it to some extent, but there has to be some psychological ability to move on and say like, okay, this trade did not work out. Let's move to the next trade. That's another great aspect of the book, which is that you sort of go to battle every day mm. and you also have mechanisms, which we all need for not, maybe not letting off steam, but um, removing your mind from battle conditions before you go back into the battle. And the game is never over. I mean, that's something I, I believe and I got from your book even more beautifully, which was that the victory is really getting to play again. Yes, it's like a poker session that never ends. That's how I always th thought about it because I, I played a lot of poker when I was younger. I have not recently, but the great thing about poker, and I have a lot of poker analogies in the book. The great thing about poker is, oh, if there's a session, you sit down at the table and then I feel like, you know, tonight is just not going well for me. This person on my left is sitting with a big stack and putting a lot of pressure on me every time I bet they raise, I cannot figure them out. This is not, not a good table dynamics for me. What do I do? I pick up my chips and go. I've done it many times in my life. There is no fine for taking your chips and going away. And like I'll play another table another day, take a break. Or like it just thinks when I start, maybe I, I usually let myself like wait till two big mistakes. If I feel like I made two big mistakes being outplayed as opposed to just being unlucky, I usually quit that night. However, investments are not like this. You never stop. Like you go to bed, your portfolio is running. You wake up, your portfolio <laughs> is running. Like I think that's, that's the attractiveness for some people who are day traders. The attractiveness is that they can take chips off the table. They can just say, hi, I'm going with a clean slate tomorrow. What can I do today? This has never been my luxury. I've never lived in that world. I always had a portfolio every second of since I've been on Wall Street. You know, 
I know FX trades fairly continuously, but I feel sorry for the people who start with Bitcoin or yeah. crypto and where it's open 24-7. Having a weekend, having time to reset, to rethink about your position seems very important. And that's something that I see I also see in your book, which is um, at some point you did make a decision in March that Fed actions would be sufficient in liquidity terms to bail out risky assets. And what made me interested wasn't only that you had quite a bit of confidence in the Fed, both in terms of never disappointing and only surprising in terms of injecting liquidity, but also in terms of the selection of risk assets that you chose going into mid-month. You chose oil, obviously that had been beaten down badly, tips, and dividend futures. Um, can you, uh, Oil is obvious. Can you sort of talk about your thesis behind the dividend futures stuff? Why did you go into those? Why didn't you just go into equity indices directly? Well, first, I did have some equity positions too, but but there is a, it's it's a good point. One of the things that I try to do, I try to think about exclude as much speculation as possible from my consideration. So I want to say like, well, I really don't know what's going to happen four or five years from now, but somehow pandemic will be over. Now, with pandemic be over, do I think that all companies will stop paying dividends or what, right? The world in which everybody would stop paying dividends would be a very strange world to me. It could happen, but it's there is a clear likelihood here. If you tell me uh, NASDAQ should yeah. be that number, how do I know what number should be NASDAQ? Yeah, you want to take the multiplier effect out, yes. the PE multiplier. Yeah, so, I'm, uh, so when there is a dividend futures, uh, and I saw how they behaved in every crisis, and I knew like dividend futures really crushed in Europe at some point, like they were trading like 40, 50% down almost from the tops. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, I, I actually would have done better even speculating on more immediate dividend futures. Same thing with oil. My speculation yep. was, I, I discussed it a lot on, uh, in other venues too, how like the many ways to play oil even much better than I did, but there was also many ways to play it much worse. <laughs> By, for example, betting on immediate Short. oil delivery. No, but, but you, you could also oh, buy like right, the yeah. May 2020 contract that expired at minus 40, right? Or whatever, there's an April contract that expired in May, right? So you could really do this thing, right? And so you could guess that in March 2022, oil will hit $130. But that's just not my province to make such guesses. If somebody figured it out between general, like there was a lot of like interesting arguments, which I think retroactively could have been deciphered why oil could have run even without the war, how far the oil could have run higher because of the lack of investment in uh, prospecting during the COVID times and ESG. And you could think about through, that's not my logic. My logic with oil was things will just go back to normal, kind of normal. And same thing with my yeah. logic was with dividends. I don't know what the world will be like, what the interest rates will be like, but assuming that dividends will kind of go back to normal in a few years, where would this dividend futures be? And that was totally not what I saw on the screen. And the tips argument was kind of a break-even inflation argument where if inflation were over 1%, you'd make out big. Yeah, the tips were just trading at like totally insane prices back then. The prices of tips were just out of this galaxy. Like it was one of the most mispriced, greatest asset misprices. Like if you structure like, and again, I don't want to like right now because it's going to be a little technical for readers, but if you structure like the asset swaps and see what am I paying on the other side and when I am receiving on the other side, if you factor in, you could take out all the interest rate risk and just look at what am I paying and what am I receiving and the it's just some kind of insanity. So just for clarification, you're saying that you sort of pay repo plus 
um, yeah, you pay some rate, and you receive an inflation rate plus an interbank lending rate or something. Yeah, you you receive inflation plus LIBOR, and you pay repo plus a tiny spread. It was just complete insanity because repo is almost always lower than LIBOR, right? And it's actually usually significantly lower than LIBOR. There is a basis swap there, which is positive, right? But it was it has happened to be negative in the long run because again of the structure of treasury trades right so that spread was going the other way and then on top of it in in the end inflation would have to be like close to zero for very close to zero for 30 years and even back then it was obvious to me that while the fed will inject liquidity and most likely this deflation shock will be followed by inflation shock i will not claim that i thought that inflation shock would be as high as it turned out to be in the last 12 months but Actually, it, is not, it was not so far from what I've foreseen. I was totally wrong about the reaction of markets to this inflation shock, and we can get into that. But I was not so horribly wrong about the inflation shock. Like, I, it totally made sense to me. Yeah, they're going to create a lot of liquidity. Liquidity will become excessive. When we come out of pandemic, there will be a shock the other way. I just didn't see the supply issue being so big. What is interesting is that I did express concern about supply chains in 2020, but I thought of it more of an issue early in pandemic because I was worried like, what if some critical supply infrastructures will start breaking down because some factories which make widgets do not make enough widgets and then suddenly power plant has a breakdown and there's not enough widgets. That was my kind of 2020 concern. But turned out that it became a 2022 problem, not a 2020 problem. <laughs> yes, and that indeed. was I was blindsided by that a little bit. Going back to 2020, uh, I just want to keep harping on the book because uh, I enjoyed it so much. If in the tail event that the Fed hadn't uh, bought assets directly and that they hadn't injected liquidity on the scale that they did, what would you have done? What, how would you have repositioned your portfolio? Do you have any sense of that? Is there an alternative reality? Maybe it's a 1% P equals 1% reality where you do something different. What would you have kept held on to? You mentioned that Euro Swiss, uh, you know, the Euro Swiss cross was a good risk on trade for you, even going into the yeah. problems. But what else would you have done? Would you have held that? Would you have? Well, I think what would have happened, and what was to an extent happening in the March, but if it was just more protracted, if the sense was that liquidity is not sufficient. I don't know, I really cannot see a scenario, like it would be again out of this galaxy scenario, the Fed would say like, we're not gonna do anything, we're not gonna help anybody any at all, right? I feel like it would be an issue, it's an issue of degree, okay? So there is no feel that there is sufficient liquidity and it's March and it's April and it's May and they're lagging and they're not giving sufficient liquidity. So some trades would continue going sideways. I think I would really try to hold on to precious metals on this situation because even they, they would suffer from the lack of liquidity, but I would feel eventually they will have to rebound when situation will resolve one way or another, that uh, I would probably try to, but I think I would end up having to reduce positions, some of the, my positions, because in the middle of March, I was actually down money on the month of March. I was still up money on the year, but because of all the margin increases and all the like stresses and volatility in the market, my portfolio was stretched pretty thinly by the middle of March. And there was a point when I was worried about my positions. I was worried about what I have to get out of. I was trying to really focus on like, okay, what's gonna, what I can hold on to. Like treasuries, I can hold on to no matter what does, eventually they'll win, right? Well, this, that sort of brings us to the panic attack, which begins the book. Uh, I must admit, 
I hope none of the investors hear this perhaps, but I had the same thing happen to me in 08. So I know what it feels like. It's horrible. And uh, even if you're on site, which I was um, at the time, it can be devastating. And it's, you know, it's easy to be philosophical about other things, but, but money or personal performance is just hit so close to the bone that, uh, you know, it's, that's another thing that you talk about in the book. Maybe you can say something about your view on strategy games, how you view trading relative to strategy games and so on, which is kind of the genesis of your, your company's name. But mm-hmm. anyway. Well, first of all, yeah, as you say, it's very close to the bone. And the thing is that I think media, when you look like media portrayals of portfolio managers, it really focuses on them wanting to make money which is of course true. Typically people don't go working for banks and hedge funds if they hate money, but there could be exceptions, but typically people are somewhat financially motivated. But the reality is money managers' personal identity is totally tied up in the performance. Like your performance is who you are. Like when you're underperforming, it's such a blow to your ego, to your identity, to your sense of self. I think that's part of the reason is some people prefer, like there is a lot of managers who kind of step out of managing other people's money and just say, I'm going to run my own money if they have enough sufficient capital because they don't want to be exposed in that way. They don't want to be naked in that way that everybody sees your performance. Everybody can judge you. Your clients, investors can complain when you're down, right? You just kind of, if I'm losing money, it's my own business. Nobody's bothering me. It's much less stressful. So there's always having investors is rewarding, not just financially, but also it leads to good dialogue, it leads to interesting interactions, uh, but it's also an extra stress. I know sometimes I play strategic game, like I play a board game with friends, and there is this critical moment, I'm hoping that something will happen and my adrenaline rushes, right? Because <laughs> yeah. and then I have to remind myself that there's no money writing on this right now, just yeah. the gloating rights, right? But you're like, I just hope, I hope I can play this card now, right? And <laughs> the desperation, yeah. It's not so, even about the money at that point. Yeah, it's not it's even about, about the money. The... So, but but I think the overlay, and I think you talked a little, you mentioned a little bit like ways to de- distress and decompress. I think what was happening in March, not just for me, but a lot of people. So you're locked down, you cannot go anywhere. It's kind of, the weather was not so great yet. I, I live in California, but March was like kind of not a great weather in 2020. And at some point they even locked down hiking trails and beaches. So it was very hard to like... This is what I was going to say. I live on the beach as well, uh, post-pandemic. And when they closed the beach, it was devastating. Yeah, it was very hard because that was like the best thing to do during the pandemic lockdown. Only, to go, only wonderful to go. Thing, yeah. And in fact, this book, The Trades of March 2020, much of it was written sitting by the ocean with a laptop. I've been going... I spent a lot of hours just taking my sun shelter, taking my laptop, my chair, and sitting and working on my laptop by the water. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because my son told me, my oldest son, that it only seems like you work four or five hours a day. You're only at your desk four or five hours a day. And I said, that's true. But I'm actually thinking about things probably 10 to 12 hours a day, minimally, maybe even on the weekends. What? Who knows? But it's a lifestyle. Is that something that you try to come uh, put across in the book as well, that it's sort of a paradigm for thinking about the world expressed within trading as well? Yes, and I actually do mention, I think, this in the book. I did my first, but I think I should mention it more in a second book. Yeah, I I feel like my work is to think. Everything else, like getting to the screens is actually just maintenance. 
My work is to think and try, and I, sometimes I don't even know what I'm thinking about, but it happens like I'm, I am um, walking, like pacing in the house, mumbling about something, right? And my wife is like, what's on your mind? I was like, well, Australian bond futures are in my mind. Do you want me to elaborate or what? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's like what happens very often, right? I could be like in the middle of some social situation or just kind of relaxing evening starts like frowning and pondering some real uh, some whatever causality relationships between assets in the world it is a lifestyle in that way i also don't spend a ton of time in front of the computer i mean i do look i spend enough to try to grasp what's going on today in the world look at some charts look at some numbers look at some headlines then choose what I might, if there is any research, I might want to read a little deeper. Or had, sometimes headlines are just sufficient. Sometimes like, okay, well, maybe this piece of research I might read today. And the rest of kind of evaluate. So I want to look at positions, portfolio. But it does not take that long time, especially like if it's not crisis environment, if it's a normal environment, it doesn't take a lot of time to get a grasp of what's going on. So the rest is just thinking about uh, strategic paradigms. And the most exciting moment in trading what is really the most beautiful moment is not when you make money, and I'm totally not being facetious about this. The most beautiful moment when I come up with this trade that I have conviction in, because that's the moment when you like when I see like, oh wow, I I figured out I can do this and this for that reason is, and then I cannot wait to put this trade on, right? So, yeah, I mean, uh, just to clarify one thing, I, I think a big theme that's implied but maybe not stated in your book is the uh, synchronization of central banks theme or asynchronization. So for example, you had a Canadian, uh, a long Canadian bond trade that you put on because the Canadian bank, uh, central bank was acting at a lag to say the Fed in terms of easing. When I used to do macro exclusively, that was a big thing for me, which is, you know, even take a recent example, the ECB was lagging in terms of worrying about inflation relative to the Fed. Is, Is this the sort of thing that really defines your thinking in some way? I think to an extent, yeah, because this is this is part of what I call the causality flux, like how causality follow, flows in the world. So, for example, imagine that uh, you, U.S. central bank gets very, Fed gets very aggressive, ECB keeps negative rates. Uh, what's going to happen is interest rate differential will increase, euro will weaken, dollar will strengthen. Then eventually, relatively, inflation will start coming down in U.S. and rising in Europe. So with a lag, ECB will also have to respond to it. And converse is true too, right? So there is these things, they work with lag, but they work almost inexorably. And that creates uh, interesting opportunities. I talk, this is something that I talk actually a lot more about in my first book, The Next Perfect Trade. Okay. Because there I talk about how you can balance portfolios between, say, for example, being long dollar and US treasury bonds, things like this, because that's when I say like, okay, if ECB is on hold and Fed's going to keep raising rates, that almost surely dollar will go up. And then with certain consequences. And that's why I was like, well, long dirty treasuries were still a buy even Fed were to get aggressive because it would just lead to curve flattening because dollar will go up and eventually long dated treasuries would perform well because inflation would be contained in that environment. Yeah, so yeah, I, I do look at those relationships a lot. Do you think of the Fed as always being the leader or is it a complex lead lag relationship? I think it's complex. And it's also there is also a difference between what they do and 
what is priced. I find FedEx kind of tends to be the leader in terms of what they actually do, but not always in terms of what is priced in. Because notice, for example, the Fed is on the move, possibly this week, right? I think it's hard to imagine them not raising rates 25 basis points the day after tomorrow, right? Any other outcome would be extremely surprising. So uh, unless like a nuclear bomb goes off somewhere next to days, heaven forbid, right? But there are other banks, RBA, Australia is not on the move yet, right? But it's priced to move more than Fed. However, New Zealand has been already on the move for a while, so it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, there is some. Uh, there are some banks that tighten, for example, this time before the Fed. So, is Fed really the leader? I think what is important is to see that it's not that Fed is in the lead or lagging. It's that if the Fed is going to do something, it's impossible for others to be immune with what the Fed does. Indeed, yeah. There's some stylized facts like uh, the Fed tends to move in the same direction five or six times in a row before they reverse course on average. Do the same sort of rules apply to other central banks? Or is, is that important? Is it just a backward-looking measure of things? It is important. And uh, I, I do look, but there is a very interesting trend there. I do want to talk about this, how many times in a row Fed moves, because that's of high importance to current environment. Yes, yes. Or, it, or even about how much it moves. So I think other banks tend to be a little more situational. I do think the Fed is probably the most kind of juggernaut type of bank. They do really like to set the policy and, and, and push it through. I probably know other bank, central banks less than the Fed, but my sense is the Fed tends to be a juggernaut. They like kind of set the mentality, we're going to do this and nothing's going to stop them. Even if sometimes I think like what they're doing is a bit strange. I'm not one of the people think that they're clueless. I think they're trying to do their best, but on occasion as a citizen, I just think like, why are they doing this? But maybe they're right and I'm wrong, right? So anyway, so in terms of the size and duration of hikes, there is definitely some length there. But there is one thing that we have to look at. The length is changing with a trend. This is what I mean. Is It's a little bit like saying average value of Dow is 10,000. But yeah, so we're way above average, but Dow is on secular uptrend, right? So of course it's going to be not converging to any kind of average of 18th century, right? Yeah. Well, whenever it started like a 19th century, right? So same thing with, I think the duration of hikes, the size of hiking cycle continues to be reducing cycle after cycle. Every, for example, the cycle of 0407 was from like 1% to five and a quarter or five and a half percent, like about more than at least 4% cycle, right? The cycle of 2016, 2018 was much smaller. There's only 2% raise. I think we're unlikely to get rates more than 1% high, high this time. Extremely unlikely rates to go above 1% this time. So in the limit, in the singular limit or the non-singular limit, we get no, no increases in rates ever again? I think so. And actually, I think if I were in charge, that would have been the case, because if you try to unwind an $8 trillion balance sheet, by the time you unwind it, you get so much tightening out of it, there is really no need for rate increases. Like why, like it's actually makes no sense to me why they need rate, like to me, and that I think that was part of my mistake in handling current markets. I did not really think that they would even want to raise rates before they unwound the balance sheet. It makes no economic sense to me, but it makes sense to other people. Other people do have valid reasons why. What I'm saying is like there are other people who know what they're talking about and they have arguments why you want to raise rates other than reduce balance sheet. My opinion is that you should be reducing balance sheet first and raising rates makes no sense because you'll never get rid of your balance sheet 
If you every time you're gonna raise rates, cause a recession, hmm. increase your balance sheet. How are you gonna get rid of your balance sheet if you're gonna just dribble it out? If you put me in this seat, I would be reducing it much. I would be long have tapered last year and now reducing the balance sheet, but not touching rates at all. Without raising and rates. And probably not and probably yeah. signal that I'm not gonna raise rates at all on the cycle. Not till the next recession. It's not gonna happen because by the time I reduce this balance sheet, there will be recession anyway. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, as you using the word you use, signaling is a big thing about changing the discount rate. It's not perhaps not as important given the size of the balance sheet now as QT or just tapering. Rates might still go up if you reduce balance sheet because it will cause people to deliver a lot. Because like uh, in 2019, when they were reducing balance sheet, there was a repo panic in September 2019. We would have more of those if we started to reduce balance sheet aggressively, if we drain excess reserves too much. But I actually think this is healthy. Let overleveraged people suffer a little bit. I'm, I am one of those hedge fund managers who might have to pay 10% repo on occasion, right? But so what, right? If you hold a leveraged position, sometimes you have to pay high funding cost. So that's the whole point. Like if you think that liquidity should be removed and you need to fight inflation, why not remove some liquidity? Going into, as you pointed out, there's a Fed announcement in two, two days. The date today is the 14th of March. Um, is there anything without, I don't want to have you look into a crystal ball. That's not what these interviews are about. But is there any anything you can say about what you expect could happen going forward in general terms? Well, I have a scenario in mind of the world, just not the fad of the world. But I, I really, generally, I'm very avoidant of saying like forecasting and saying this is what's going to happen. Always, I, I always try to say like, I put the trades which I think are good and then see what happens. But I have a certain playbook right now, which is, of course, depends on the developments in the war a lot. I think the Fed will hike 25 basis points on Wednesday. I don't think it's very likely that they will surprise the market by 50 basis point hike uh, because uh, just they didn't signal it. And as we talk back to signaling, there is really no upside to them. But I think they'll signal pretty strongly that what they might signal is that they're going to start going every meeting or go. I think the language will be pretty hawkish, most likely. I think what's going to happen in reality is, and they're going to stay hawkish, maybe they'll get a few more hikes in, but the time to hike is running very, very short. I believe that what's going to happen is that the war will resolve one way or another, and it will affect a lot. One way to, the war can be resolved is if there's an off-ramp for everybody. Another way that the war just becomes like a long, painful, protracted thing, but it will go into the background. The difference between those two things would be the energy prices. Because in my first scenario, if there is an off-ramp, ramp, I actually expect a catastrophic collapse in energy prices in the next two years. I think oil could go below $40. Because what's going to happen is, if there is an off-ramp, Russia will need to urgently make up for the financial gap, so they'll start selling a lot of oil. Meanwhile, everybody else will try to be energy independent in every possible way. Prospecting will increase. In the next couple of years, the oil prices could go very far down. Now, otherwise, we have all the signals for late cycle and impending recession. So now we have falling energy prices, commodity prices will reverse very hard. That's what I think will happen in the next few months, most likely. I think uh, economy will reverse very hard. I think inflation numbers will still be high for the next few months of the energy prices, but that will reverse pretty soon if energy reverses. And I think by the end of this year, we might start printing negative month-on-month -month inflation and rates will have to start heading back to zero. 
There's a lot of information content in that. Well, that is um, my what I call a central scenario. That is, if you choose one scenario, which I think is most likely, this is this is most likely scenario in my head, and I could be totally wrong in it. And I also want to for the listeners who might want to place bets, I want to say this is not my expert opinion. It's almost like my layperson speculation about the world. Where I'm expert in is what trade I want to put on, not like what I speculate is going to happen. But for example, I don't have any insight on geopolitics, like whether there will be off-ramp for the war or not. I would like to see an off-ramp for the war, obviously, for personal reasons, right? Some kind of resolution when people can stop killing each other. That would be a good benefit, right? But if there is some kind of resolution that the war can stop and everybody can save face and sanctions can be lifted. So if Russia could give up enough to save face, but at the same time give up enough to have the sanctions lifted and say, we're going to trade lifting sanctions for removing, pulling back and everybody's somehow satisfied, we could have very quick unwind of energy prices and a lot of things and wound up on this war. But it will not stop the recession. In fact, recession will be still very, I think recession is a very high probability right now. Yeah, which brings us back to another excellent point in the book, which is that, or actually what's left out rather than what's included, which is that I rarely see any economic releases in your book. I rarely see anything like, oh, industrial production was X, building starts were Y, and so on. It's all about constructing the right trade based on a more macro level view of what's going on in terms of growth and inflation. And I think that's very powerful in terms of what people can take away from this in terms of not over-focusing on data releases that may be stale, may be revised or revisable, uh, may not give a total picture of things, and, and certainly don't show the interaction of various components of the machine. So I, I thought that was very important too. Yes, I try to focus, I try to not to focus too much on places where I don't have any advantage over other people. Like my understanding of industrial production is no better than other 100,000 traders doing the same thing. So uh, I'm trying to find ways to not take that into account and still construct a trade, not take into account my opinion on what's going to happen. Same thing right now, I'm giving you an opinion, but I also have to say, how do I trade not relying on this opinion too much? Yeah, exactly. Um... Well, I don't have much more to ask. I mean, I've I've said this probably four or five times. I'll say it for the sixth time. I think it's a, it, this is a great book, The Trades of March. And uh, again, I'd recommend that other people read it. I learned a lot from it. I enjoyed the Bloomberg chats a lot. I, that, I mean, is more for the people who are in the industry, but I think it's highly revealing in terms of what traders look for in terms of conciseness as well. I mean, traders don't want to hear a long-winded answer about uh, why something is trading at level X when, in fact, they just need to think about whether to get the trade off, whether to resize, and so on. And that conciseness that you see when you're in the industry is very educational, I think, for the general audience as well. Yes, thank you. I, I really had that feeling that uh, the importance of, especially so if, if you think of trading like studying medicine, right? Then my first book is kind of the anatomy. I tell you the anatomy of the body. Those are the components what I think is a good trade. And my second book is more like actually taking people into the operating room, what it really looks like in the trenches. And I feel like that, that really makes my, the trades of March stand out from other financial texts that 
because of those chats, even if you don't really understand everything that's going on there, it gives you a very good feel for what the day actually looks like for a trader during crisis, what they're actually talking about and what they're, and as you mentioned, what they're actually not talking about because they don't have time to. Indeed. Uh, final point, final question is you talk about uh, portfolio risk management uh, being more important than position risk management in some sense in general. How do you manage that uh, in the heat of battle? I mean, it's easier to look at one position and say, oh, I'll cut the risk. How do you think in terms of everything moving together uh, when prices are moving rapidly? Well, you do the best you can. You have a team. I have a risk management officer who is in charge of it, like trying to monitor portfolio performance and portfolio risks and continuously with it was a very fluid situation obviously in march 2020 and even recently we've encountered some fluid situations honestly we just do the best we can but i think the key is to understand what is happening to portfolio because if you start for over focusing on a trade uh you could be losing the balance of the portfolio and really Sometimes it's like tempting to cut a trade, like your portfolio is doing poorly and it might be tempting to cut the trade, which actually is making money at that moment because you want Indeed. to take profits. But what reality is you do that. And then the one thing that was actually giving you the lifeline is lost, right? And then your rest of your portfolio keeps sinking. So it's very important mm -hmm. to keep thinking, is my portfolio at least somewhat balanced? This is a problem that I had when I started out, which is, over-trading positions that didn't make enough of a difference to the overall book and trying to nickel and dime in those areas and forgetting the larger picture of what the shape of my portfolio was looking like. So I think that's very powerful. Uh, do you have any final comments? Um, well, it is interesting that uh, my final comment, I have noticed that every few years something happens over my career. And it's something that you could not have predicted. It's always something happens. It was, I started my career with Asian Contagion in 97, then there was a Russian debt crisis in 98, LTCM crisis, then a few years passed relatively calmly, then there was September 11th. Then there was, after that, there was actually a few relatively calm years till global financial crisis, 07, 08, then there was European debt crisis in 10, 11, then there was a, a 15, 16, there was a Chinese devaluation, industrial recession, Brexit kind of grouping, 2015, 2016. Then there was COVID and we're like, okay, when's something else gonna happen? And no one would think that that would be the war in Europe that would, like if somebody asked me that the next thing that's gonna happen, that's gonna really put us into a weird and un properly understood environment, that that would be the war breaking out, full-scale war in Eastern Europe. Like I wouldn't have, maybe some people would have thought that I wouldn't have. I admit, and, it's, and even when, when the war was kind of looming, when the tensions were rising, I wouldn't be the one to say, well, this is, the, this is what's going to dictate the direction of global financial markets. So I think it is very important to remember when you position yourself for long term that something always happens. And I gave the rundown of pandemic happening, that moment when something happens. After it happened, you kind of readjust, you think what's next. But that first month, just like right now, we're in the first month of the war, that first month of the pandemic, what trades you find there? How do you manage your portfolio? How you manage your psychological pressures? In some sense, the current situation is also similar because a lot of people have a lot of personal feelings about what's going on, just as September 11th was. But at the same time, you still have to, you cannot just say, I'm not gonna manage my portfolio. 
So when you position your portfolio, it's very easy to like forget. You, you very easy to project things for several years without realizing that in those next several years something will happen. And I hope I described well how it looks in financial markets when pandemic arrives. And maybe someone else will write a book about this war. I'm sure there will be books written about this war. Well, it was a wonderful book that you wrote. So thank you very much. And thank with you. that, I hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Alex, for a wonderful conversation. I really appreciated many of the topics that was brought up today, like how there are so many ways to be wrong when buying an option, even if you're kind of right, and why Alex chose to be very long treasuries going into March 2020, and to learn that Alex was one of the pioneers of the risk parity framework back in the year 2000. And for sure, the part of the conversation that became quite personal, dealing with panic attacks and how, as a manager, your performance can end up defining who you are, was very powerful. Make sure you go and follow Alex's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, Thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.